But we do want to get started, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 5 today, and uh, today will be the final lesson for this quarter and the final lesson for 1 Peter. If you have your handout, you'll notice that we're covering down through verse 11 today, and you may say, well, you promised that you'd finish, and there's a few more verses. And uh, some of these I dealt with with a few comments in the introduction, because they lend themselves more to that type of a of an approach, I think, than a message, although there are some, some good thoughts there, but we won't, we won't really be dealing with those today. We'll be dealing with the last of the main body of the letter and finishing up our study here. And I do want to take just this opportunity to thank you this morning for being a part of this class. You've been a good group, and I appreciate so much uh, your consistency, your faithfulness, and your interest. And uh, we have a very strong lineup of classes for next time. I, I'm sure you've probably seen that either in the bulletin today or in the email that was mailed out. Ron Glass is going to be teaching a class, and I'm sure that'll be good. And Patrick has a class that I know will be good. And we'll be continuing in 2 Peter. So I won't, uh, I won't presume to make that decision for you. I would say pray about it, think about it, see what the Lord has for you. But you've got three very strong choices for next time. All right, we're in 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 5. Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll read the text and we'll jump into our, our lesson for today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the Word of God and the privilege, Lord, that we have here in America. There are many places that also have this privilege, but in, in some ways it seems like our privilege is great, greater maybe than others with the availability of your Word, the freedoms that still exist, uh, the houses of worship that are plentiful, where we can gather and where we can open the Word of God and where we can hear the Word of God preached and taught, we can listen, we can absorb, and we can grow. And uh, we know that this is another thing that Peter exhorts, that we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as newborn babes to desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. And so continue to use your Word to build us up. Bless this day at community as God's Word is presented. Lord, whether here in ABF, we pray you'll be with Bill in the class uh, adjoining, and also uh, Matt Heineman, the other side, and any of the other younger classes. Bless every student, every teacher today, and bless Pastor Andrew and John Hutchison as God's Word is ministered to us uh, in, our, in our regular services. We'll give you the glory. We just pray that we will go away with a sense of your presence, uh, and having concluded this day, that we'll be able to look back on it and and know that you met with us and know that you spoke to us from your word. So clear our hearts and minds now of problems and cares and anxieties and things that we may deal, need to deal with later today, but which we really can't deal with now, and it's not so much your plan. Your plan is for us to, to focus on your word now. Give us the ability to do that. Help me, Lord, today. I pray that you would just cleanse my heart afresh and anew of sin and also grant to me that fresh oil, that presence of the Spirit, the guidance, the freedom that He provides uh, to be able to bring your word today in a practical, warm, and helpful way. Um, these things I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we don't have a long section for today, so jump to verse 8, and we're going to look at uh, 8, 9, 10, and 11. So four verses comprise our, uh, our section for today. Reading from the ESV, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering 
are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a triumphant and wonderful note to end on. And what we want to do is, we want to consider today humility in weakness. Quick overview for the last time. We've been looking at this theme of Christ's sufficiency in suffering. Looking at it being developed by Peter in the book according to three key thoughts. That first of all, Christ is sufficient in suffering because he sustains us by his salvation. That's in chapter 1 down through chapter 2 verse 10. And starting in verse 11 of chapter 2 and down through the end of chapter 4. Also then, secondly, because his example guides us. And in this last section, which has been predominantly here in, or is completely in uh, chapter number 5, because his humility inspires us. And I just want to say that, I said it last week, but I want to say it again. It, there, are, there are a few things that are more inspiring than when, when humility prevails in a person's life. That's a, a tremendous inspiration to us. Christ is obviously the pinnacle of examples in this because we saw that the key action that we're to take to demonstrate this submission is by submission, or to this humility is submission. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I suggested that because this verse seems to tie up all the ends that we're looking at, this, this is kind of a great verse to consider the key verse for this, this unit, this section that we're dealing with right now. As far as this morning, humility and weakness, as far as that is concerned, let me tell you a thought that kind of is where I'm at here with this today. You know, when things are going well for us, when we have the seas are following and the winds are favorable, it's easy for us to sort of become very independent and self-reliant, isn't it? And it's in those times that pride tends to seep into our lives unknowingly. Sometimes it's extraordinarily subtle that this happens, and we, we, we tend to just operate with an air of self-sufficiency. And I'm not standing in line for it. Please understand, I've told you before, I'm a big chicken. But what better than weakness to bring us back to earth, to bring us back to reality, to demonstrate to us how desperately we really need the Lord. And you know what I'm talking about. We have this ebb and flow that takes place in the Christian experience. And so this is a great way to end this because another thing that you're going to see this morning is, is that shot throughout this entire passage is Peter's background experience. Most specifically, what I'm talking about is the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Jesus told the disciples, three of them, of whom Peter was one, to come and to pray with him. And you know, they all, all three of them failed really in that because they kept on falling asleep. And we'll get more specifically to some of the exhortations. But Peter himself, Jesus singled out in his warnings that night. And we'll get to that in a moment. But as you know, because Peter did not take that seriously, because he was operating with that air of of self-sufficiency, that pride which was exhibited really when he said, no, 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 
Everybody else may do this, but I won't. And then what happened? Horrible failure came into his life. It brought him a great deal of grief and personal anxiety. I've always loved that text that says, And when he had thought thereon, he wept. And when he had thought thereon, he wept. And Peter was broken over this. And so, really, that experience is at the backdrop of what we're going to be looking at in this section today. And I have to believe that this was a little painful, really, for Peter to to write about. But looking at it strictly from a human perspective, I take my hat off because, and I've always tried to follow this in my own life, if I see that something has happened, I figure, well, if I had to go through this and had to figure out how to prove God's sufficiency and bumped my chin a time or two along the way, surely I can share that. Surely I can get get some more mileage out of that, not just what the Lord did for me, but maybe in sharing that with other people or finding ways to use that as an example, um, other people can be encouraged. And that's what Peter's doing here. So we kind of have to take our hats off, I think, to him. So notice here... um, that there is a, an element here that's brought out, and it touch, touches base with something I've alluded to so far. What better to remind us, and Peter knows this all too well, is to start talking about the fact that we have an adversary who always seeks to exploit our weakness in trial. So remember that verse that I put up there again. Back all the way to chapter 1, verse 6, was the first hint that we got what this letter was going to be about. Because he talks about, if need be, your souls are in heaviness through manifold or various trials or temptations. And in those things, our weakness tends to become much more apparent. But if you have someone externally, it's one thing to be be weak, kind of get away from that a little bit and become a little cocksure. But then when you add to the fact that each of us has fallen and there's an intrinsic, there's an inherent weakness that we all have because of our sin natures, an adversary external to that. Now, you've got double trouble, and Satan knows exactly how to exploit us in those times of trial, temptation, and suffering, as it mentions in verse number 10 in our text today, after that you have suffered a little while, and up in the verse before, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Well, God is in those things, but don't forget that Satan is someone who is not unaware of the ability to exploit them himself. And so we want to be careful here. So out of this painful experience, out of the lesson that he hopefully learned, Peter tells us about three responses. So first of all is the right attitude. Now, I'm going to tell you up front. I'm going to telegraph something to you, all right? The right response is the opening of the verse. Be sober-minded, or the right attitude is the the first couple of exhortations that you find in the verse. Be sober-minded, be watchful. But I want to start talking about the reasons why we need to be sober-minded and be watchful. Our own weaknesses are sufficient for that exhortation, but look what he adds. He says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let's take that apart just a little bit. So, first of all, he says, your adversary. He doesn't say the adversary. 
He doesn't even say the devil. He just says your. And, and it's very interesting because that catches my attention. In other words, it becomes very personal. See, it's one thing, let, let's, let's use the Ukraine for a moment for an example, and your President Zelensky. It's one thing to know that you have the Russian bear up on your border with 100 150,000 troops. It's another thing to find out that he sent Chechnyan assassins after you personally. Right? There's a difference between those things. And they, they may go together, but all of a sudden it becomes very personal when you realize someone is out to get you. Now I have to confess, I, I have to kind of do a little preaching it myself here because when I think about that, I think about overcoming that I've kind of felt all along in life and ministry, and that is, you know, I don't really amount to enough to attract Satan's attention. I'm sure he can send a lesser minion to handle me. I, you know, surely he's got, Satan has bigger fish to fry. I mean, maybe Washington, D.C., or I don't know, or maybe some church pastor who's got 5,000 people or something. But, you know, for years and years, and it, don't, 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 mis, don't mistake me in this, there was never any resentment. I was in the place that God put me and was content. But I, I used to think to myself, you know, I'm... I'm sort of a way here in a relatively rural setting in, in Pennsylvania. And with a, a church of moderate size, it depends on how you want to compare things, what you're comparing against, roughly the size of this church for now, maybe a little larger, but in, in earlier days, this church has probably been a little larger, but it, in rough terms, that kind of a thing. And uh, I used to think, well, surely the devil is not needed here in Huntington. Uh, I'm, I'm weak enough, and he's got enough demons that he can t take care of what he needs to here without coming himself. So I don't know how you figure this out, but I, I do know that it tells us that Satan is a personal adversary who is adept at exploiting. Look what he says he does. calls him the accuser. So in the verse, your adversary, the devil, but so he is the devil. And as the devil, he's the slanderer. That's what that word means, diabolos. Is, is from a word that means to cast. And so it's, it's the idea of casting, hurling, accusations. And that's, of course, what adversary in this particular context is, a, is actually a word that has a legal flavor to it. So you think about a lawsuit. If you think about a lawsuit, now what we're talking about is the plaintiff. I don't know if you ever read that stuff, and I get bollocks up in it. I have to slow down and, who's the plaintiff? Oh, that's the opposite of the defendant. And then they, then they tried out all this Latin stuff. And I know a few phrases in Latin, but I don't know all the legal ones. So I ended up having to look them up. But this is the plaintiff. This is the person doing the accusing. So you're over here sitting at the defense table. And the district attorney is the one bringing the charges and presenting the accusations of the state. That's, the, that's what this word is. Satan is the, Satan is the, the, the like the, the district attorney presenting the charges. Does he do this? All the time. In fact, think of how many ways Satan does this. He accuses us to God, sometimes for good reason. <laughs> sometimes 
you know, it's pretty easy for Satan, and there's a couple of places in the Bible that picture this, to, to go to the Lord and say, hey, look what Tom Coleman did. Well, he's a good example this week, isn't he? And he accuses God to us. All you have to do is go to the Garden of Eden to see that. What did he do? He, he basically went to Eve and he said, you know, God isn't like what you think. There's all this stuff about good, but God isn't really good. God's withholding this from you. Really? You can't have fruit from that tree? Oh, it's because God isn't so good as you thought. He knows that in the day you eat thereof, you'll be like him. And that's what he's trying to protect. He's trying to, to guard his turf. Doesn't want you to be like him. And what was he doing? He was casting aspersion on God on, and on God's character. He was accusing God to the first humans. And, of course, he accuses us to each other. Have you ever noticed how good the devil is at that? I mean, somebody looks at you sideways or whatever or says something doesn't hit you quite right, and the first thing you know, you've taken that the wrong way. And that's our, it seems to me like that's always our first reaction is to take it the wrong way. Then first thing you know, we work up a little irritation at this brother. And think about how this goes on in churches all the time and how Satan is doing this on multiple fronts, multiple places, multiple lives all the time, whether it's him personally or through his minions. This is what he does. And then Peter calls him a roaring lion. So there's a, a lot that you can get out of this because a lion is powerful, number one. It's not for no reason that, Satan, that lions are called the king, of the king of the jungle. And it's an image of power, but it's also an image of deadliness because, and it's, it's, the King James uses the translation devour. I think we, do we have that here as well? Yeah, uh, yes, it uses devour here as well. And it also talks about the fact that, uh, it's kind of interesting how ESV renders this, seeking someone to devour. In the Greek text, it's literally, is walking. And I like that because I, years ago, there was an old gentleman that um, helped us some on our property when we, when we owned the property, but we weren't living there full time. We, we needed somebody to, to, to take care of the horses. And he used to, it got to be, mm, I don't know whether it was March or whatever, but it got to be the warmer weather, which is a lot earlier here in some places in the country, and he used to say, snakes is walking. What's that mean? That means you better mind your manners because they're out there. And uh, where we were, I mean, in Pennsylvania, I, I don't know if I was a little bit too incautious or not, but I'd go out at night and never even think about it and walk around. But I'd never think to do that where we were in South Carolina, not, not, in the, not in the warmer weather, because you just never knew. And uh, I, it was very much impressed on my mind when one night we had let the dogs out right before bed. And uh, all of a sudden there was howling and carrying on and turned on the floodlights and looked outside, and there were the both of them banging this huge snake, coiled turned out to be a, a rattlesnake of nearly six feet in length, right off the corner of our carport. And, uh, well, the other one dog, the bigger dog, was obedience trained, and when my mom called her, she came. The other dog was my dog, and he was a little doxy. And uh, stubborn, that's that German. 
<laughs> you know, I can say that because I have some. And uh, didn't come. And ultimately, I, I don't really have time for the whole story this morning, ultimately the dog got bit and was dead in eight and a half minutes. Just really nothing we could do. And, but it was graphic to me. There's danger. You need to be careful. This is, what, this is the impression that Peter is trying to give to us. So what are we to do in the light of this? Well, we're to be sober, which is to say that we have to take it seriously. We can't just blow it off. We can't just prosecute our Christian life as if there were no landmines out there because there are plenty of them. And Satan is a formidable, formidable adversary. We also have to be alert. Now, I want you to think about those two things because who's saying this? And think about his experience. What was his experience? Painful. And what were the verses that we could look at? Well, in, the, in part of that situation, when Jesus spoke to Peter personally, he said to him, Simon, Simon. That would get your attention because it was the Lord who called him Peter, but this was his, this was his given name. So this is a kind of like an attention getter. It's kind of like when your mother calls you by all three names. You know it's serious then. And so he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan desired to have you. Talk about a personal adversary. What he wrote here, your adversary. Satan has desired to have you. And what does it say? That he may sift you like wheat. Did you ever just stop and think for a minute or meditate about what that image is? Because... Sifting wheat is to thresh it, which is, if you know anything about how they did it in the ancient world, that's a violent process. You get banged around. Uh, so this, isn't, this image that Jesus was using to try to arrest his attention was graphic, but he didn't pay any attention. He told them all, watch and pray that you may not, that is the three, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Peter certainly knows what he's talking about here when he gives us this, and, and uh, he's, got the, he's got the credentials all over the place to talk about it. Let's go to the next thing. So beyond a right attitude, that is to take this very seriously and to, to remain vigilant, to, to remain watchful all the time, being on guard all the time, there is another response, or a right response, that's called for, because not only is Satan a, the great accuser, but he's also the great intimidator. And I think that Peter could write from experience here, um, fearfulness is what I'm after, because if somebody tries to intimidate you, what are they trying to do? They're trying to frighten you or scare you out of where you are, which is your position or your scruples or whatever, to get you to do what they want you to do. That's a, that's a very effective technique that Satan is using all the time. And it's a technique that's used all the time out in the world as well. You try to intimidate people. You try to, to um, scare them to get them to do something you want them to do. Where do we see this? Look at these verses. So this is also in connection with this last night 
um, that is Gethsemane, the experience. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. That's a rather graphic image too. And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So now he uses scripture to warn them. Not just his personal warning, but the scripture. And in verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Now here's Peter's response. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. There's a few things that I've heard people say in life that I've thought to myself, well, I wish I'd have said that. This is not one of them. I will never fall away. Verse 34, he said, Jesus said to him, hmm, truly, I tell you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Imagine contradicting the Lord, but I suspect we all do it. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same. Now this progresses. You notice this is verses 31 to 35. By the time we get down here to verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came. Now Judas didn't come by himself, did he? This was four people in a garden. If you think about it from Judas' perspective, the maximum he might have expected to encounter might have been 13, well, 12, because he was gone, so that left 11 plus Jesus, 12. Turns out there's only four. There's Peter, James, John, and Jesus. But he comes with a great crowd, it says, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. That's pretty intimidating, wouldn't you say? Not to mention, this is Matthew's rendition, not to mention knowing Roman soldiers were also there. That's scary. I mean, it's like some of these arrests that we've heard about where they really want to intimidate you, so they show up at 5.30, 6 o'clock at your home, the FBI and people with assault rifles and vests and helmets and all this stuff as if, you know, I won't go any more with that. You, you know what I'm talking about. That's a, a great way to intimidate. But then we, by the time we get to the end of the chapter in the concluding verse, it says this in verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Look at the net effect of all of this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is intimidation. So what am I saying? That we need to be afraid of Satan? Well, I think that's the very thing that Peter is, is impressing on us. That's not the response. Despite the fact that he's a formidable adversary, despite the fact that he brings to the table more than 6,000 years of experience, as well as all the spiritual sophistication that he has, just as in the Bible, meekness is not the same thing as weakness, so it is that humility is not the same thing as fear. And Peter says, you must resist, and strongly, firmly, you must resist. So this is a defensive posture. Remember, he's the plaintiff. He comes with, he comes with the accusation. He comes with the intimidation. He comes with the accusation. He comes with the intimidation, trying to cow us into the wrong course of action, 
Peter says, but you don't have to be intimidated. You don't have to, to worry. You can resist firmly. Now, that sounds strange because Peter didn't do it. But Peter tells us how we can. And so this is drawing off the, this is drawing off the experience now. And this is drawing off the, what the Holy Spirit wants us to get out of this. How, how do we do this? If, if Satan is so formidable, how, do we stand a chance against Satan? Well, not in your own strength. But he mentions two things. The first is bolstered by his word. Notice the phrase in the verse, verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. So our task is maybe to kind of figure out what does that mean, in your faith. And it turns out that it's literally in the faith. And, and your is a permissible translation if you're taking faith in the subjective sense. That is to say your belief, your trust in God. That's the subjective sense of faith. So the your is an effort in translating that article to sort of bring that, that sense out. That would be resting on his word. What we believe about God, resting on that. Are, some things, are there some things that we can rest on? Well, I like the promises of God's word. This one in particular, which kind of brings us to the same thing that James said and gave us this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. So we're promised that God is on our side. If we will take the, de the defensive posture that God wants us to take and not just give in and appropriate the strength and spiritual armament that God has provided for us, he promises us a measure of victory over this. He says he will flee from you. Do you ever notice how, um, this is not exclusively true, but I think it's true enough that you've all seen it in certain instances, might be around here that you encounter this riding a bike. Or it might be that you encounter it out walking. But there's some dogs that will come at you. What's your best response to that? Well, it depends. I mean, you, there are some dogs that will come at you and you better figure out how you're going to deal with it because they really mean it. They're coming. So in that case, better to have some spray or a club or however you're going to cope with this. But a lot of dogs, it's a lot of this. They come at you, the minute you turn around and face them or speak in a stern voice to them, they back off. You know, I, I learned this years ago, not so much with walking, although I have a few encounters with that now. And I have had them with, with cycling, too. But horseback riding, I encountered it a good bit. I found this out. Now, of course, if you're on a horse, you've got a force multiplier. <laughs> the horse is just a bit larger than the dog. But I found out most of the time, if, if I would turn and face that dog, yell at it and run it, or walk fast at it with the horse, they run right back where they came from. This is kind of what's going on here. If you, if you turn to face Satan rather than cow, be cowed by him, and he sees that you're doing that not in your own strength, but in God's strength, he's gone. He can't handle that. 
So that's the first thing. But if we take faith in the objective sense, in other words, the revealed body of Christian truth, then bolstered by his word in that sense is utilizing his word. And of course, you were maybe looking at these verses. This is the second thing here. This is what Jesus did, and we find these examples all the way through. But in the temptation in the wilderness, he constantly countered what Satan was those propositions of Satan with the word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written three times. So this is why it's so important for us. Pastor Andrew's just sort of been through a series on this, really, but this is why it's so important for us to spend time in God's word, meditate on God's word, especially memorize God's word. I mean, you can do it in a general way, but it might be more effective for you in your, in your spiritual life if you do it in a targeted way. Learn verses that help you with problems or learn verses that speak to you so that you can employ them. And, uh, you know, I, years ago I heard a, a very esteemed Christian professor, I won't call the name, talk about this, but he said, you know, I had trouble sleeping at night. And he said, I learned to have at the ready certain verses from God's word that helped me with that. And he said, I'd, I'd be lying there awake and, you know, your mind's not a vacuum, so it's going to turn to something. And whether it was anxiety or I don't know, but, you know, you, you have those verses. So I thought, well, that's, that's, that's certainly a great application of what we're talking about now. I'm going to try that. And I found I had limited success with it, but I'll tell you what I had better success with. <laughs> of course, I had to leave the bedroom if I was going to do it and go in the living room and get in a lazy boy or lie on the couch. But I'd turn on Alexander Scorby. I'm serious. Now, if you can give me a, a new guy with another version that his voice is okay, I'm fine with that too. Uh, you know, it... it some of the ones that I've heard, they, they don't quite do it for me, but I turn on Alexander Scorby and just listen to the Bible, and I, usually I'd be, and I know this because I'd set a timer. I'd set a timer on my iPod, and, and I'd be <laughs> usually no more than 30 minutes. I never heard the end of it. I never heard it stop. I don't know. So, of course, some people say, well, why should I do that? I just come to church. I don't know whether it's the same effect or what, but anyway, it works. So then the second thing is comforted. Comforted how? So, so there's two things here. We're bolstered by his word, and we're comforted how? By knowing that we're not alone. What does Peter say? Knowing, he says, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Paul's rendition of this is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the thing of it is, is to, to know, because if you think about what the tactics of the wolf are with the sheep, and that's a Bible image, right? Satan's the wolf, the flock are the sheep. 
if he can get you off by yourself, if he can get the one, one of the weaker ones off by itself, then you become even more vulnerable. And so Satan certainly knows how to employ this tactic also. And we have to constantly remember now, interesting that the, the word brotherhood is used here because we saw it back in chapter, two, seven, in chapter 2, verse 17. So there's twice that Peter uses this word in the book. And it's the verse that says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And uh, so this doesn't exclude ladies. Basically what this phrase is meant to do is to encompass the entire Christian community. And Peter, Peter takes our horizons beyond just thinking of locally, Subaru Road or Greenville or whatever else, not just the Christian community here, but he says throughout the world. So all of these things that we encounter, what does this mean, beloved? Well, it means not everybody has your exact temptation, but there are some that do. So we're all unique individuals. Some things tempt some people more than others, but wherever it is that you have a problem, you can be sure there's somebody else that's going through that or has gone through that or knows about that. So that's kind of where we are with this. Now, we're... we're uh, needing to move along here, so forgive me, but I'm going to go to the last. Did I never even flip the slides? I guess I didn't, huh? Oh, well, you've got the handout. Uh, or maybe I just never adjusted my... Yeah, I see what I did. I didn't adjust my Roman numerals. So we're on the right point, but it's labeled as two instead of three. I see now. <clears throat> the right perspective. So now there's a third thing. The great accuser is the great intimidator is the great liar. Jesus told the Jews, Year of your father the devil and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Great liar. What would he have us believe? That our sufferings are either random or unfair. You know, when, when, if you don't believe in a God who's sovereign, you deprive yourself of a great deal of security because when things are random in your life, it's just like there's no one who has any control. I certainly don't have control. I just lost my job. And I don't have control over that. I just got a phone call from the doctor, and I don't have any control over that. And, and it, it leads us to just become desperately shaken and unsettled. So we can't believe that our sufferings are random. They just passed a law. You can't meet at church on Wednesday night anymore. Whatever. Or that they're unfair. What did I do to deserve this? I've been trying to do right. And Satan constantly is at work trying to do this. But you know, this is not the perspective of the Bible. It's not the perspective that Peter presents. He says, instead, you've got to understand something. It's God at work. God is at work doing something. He might not tell you what it is he's doing. But you can be assured that God is at work doing something. Now, here's where I would maybe propose a little upgrade here. Our our version says, ESV says, are being experienced. Or does it bring it, is it 
translate that where does it say yeah are being experienced so I would propose that we stick with a different translation actually I think the way the King James renders this is better are being accomplished instead of are being experienced you say well, what's the difference it's because the word in the original which I supplied for you there epitelestai that verb right at the heart of that see the T-E-L at the heart of that that tell in Greek, telos is an aim or a goal. It can be a terminal point, but the concepts overlap because if you're moving the football down the field towards the goal, there's a terminal point. So when you cross that line, right? So there's a goal in view here, and beyond the meaning of the word, which tends to emphasize this thing of the end or a goal, it's in the present tense, which is our being, it's ongoing, it's a process. And beyond that, it's passive voice, our being experienced. Well then, who is in control of this? And it, all of this creates the effective, perhaps subtle, but effective notion that God is the one who's in control, orchestrating all of this, that it's a process, that it's ongoing. And I like the way Alan Stibbs puts it in his commentary, which that's a, a short little commentary that's well worth owning. He says, they, referring to the sufferings, will come to an end when those purposes are fulfilled. God has a purpose. God's at work doing something. And we have to remember something else. In these afflictions, Peter reminds us God's grace is sufficient. Talk about Christ is our sufficiency. Right at the end, boy, you get a real emphasis on this. And after you have suffered a while, verse 10, the God of all grace, or it could be rendered the God of every grace. God is not going to put me, and he's not going to put you in a circumstance of trial or suffering in which he does not provide the grace to go through it. You don't have that grace sitting here today, unless you're in it. But when you are in it, God will supply that grace because... He's the God of every grace. There's not a situation he doesn't have grace for. Not only that, his purpose is irrevocable. What purpose is that? Well, he's called us to his eternal glory. And I'm telling you something, beloved, there's a very intentional contrast in this verse between the temporal and the eternal. Because he says, after you have suffered a while. See, all of this suffering business is a part of this earthly scene. It's a factor of time. When time is no more and you and I are no longer bound by this temporal scene, but pervading the whole thing anyway is an eternal purpose that God has and there isn't anything, I don't care what it is, there is no suffering, there is no trial, there is no difficulty that can contravene the eternal purpose of God. And if you belong to him, he's called you to his eternal glory. You're going to get there. You know why I know that? Because Peter already told me back in chapter 1, we are being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So in our weakness, this all-sufficient God promises. We should take this as a promises, not a prayer. King James has this as a prayer, but they're actually future, future, ten, uh, future tense uh, indicative verbs. God is going to pray. He promises to restore us to confirm us, to strengthen us, to establish us. I wish I had time to talk about those word pictures. Here it is in a sentence. 
The word restore is used of mending nets. And sometimes, you know, out there in the, the midst of all of this, we get damaged. We, get, we take some hits. The word confirm has the idea of props behind it. Sometimes we get the props knocked out from under us. We certainly lack strength. And the word establish is the idea of a foundation. And sometimes we get the rug pulled out from under us. When life does that, this all-sufficient God, the God of every grace, who has called us to his eternal power or his eternal glory, also remember his promise that he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and settle us. And listen, I have to go, but let's close with this. This God we've been talking about is in perfect control. Look at verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word dominion in the New Testament is used, it's one of the many words that has the idea of strength implied in it, but it's not used of us, it's used of God. It comes from a root that probably is speaking of God as creator, and it means that God is in control. He's in perfect control. There's never a day when he says something that somebody has to come along later and clean up three times. I'm just looking to see who's smiling. Whenever God says something, he means it. And it doesn't have to be fixed later. So, I already told you, I'm a big chicken. But I'm going to leave you with this. This is what you have to say in your stronger, better moments. Let us courageously welcome all that he sends and ordains for his glory. Father, help us with what we've been exposed to from your word today. We need it. These problems are out there. They can be unsettling. We just ask that you would give us strength and grace. We know you promised to. Help us to appropriate it. Give us victory. And bless us now in the service to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.